machinery going here. Hello, one, two, three, four. Oh, my God. This is like sitting at the controls of a 747. Hello, one, two, three, four. Hello, testing. Hello, the chief is on hand. Yes, sir. And all you grasshoppers out there are playing. It's us ants that are working. That, uh, let me tell you, that's one of the worst things about showbiz. You just got to accept it, friends. When all the grasshoppers are out there playing and sitting there on their old duffel roonies, guess who's working? That's right. Hey, you know, the, the only time I ever heard of that not uh, being true was uh, one time in uh, Toledo, of all towns, a uh, manager of a radio station uh, whom I happen to have been uh, familiar with a uh, strange, uh, <laughs> interesting guy. Along came some uh, holiday, you know, like, say, uh, Lincoln's birthday or something. You know, just one of these, uh, just a holiday, see. And uh, he decided that uh, since everybody else was having a holiday, why the hell not uh, give the radio station a holiday? So he just went off the air that day. I call that remarkably intelligent. That that, that sort of intelligence made sure that he would not last long in this business, and he did not. <laughs> you know, <laughs> he did. He just went off the air. Said, we'll be back on Wednesday, and that was all there was to it. Nobody missed it either. That's the interesting thing about it. I think the most significant side of it. But the you know the cockamamie world continues. Uh, for those of you who like to keep up, in spite of a holiday, you like to keep up with what's uh, really happening in the world. We have a bulletin here from the United Press: Richland, Washington, Becky Alexander. A 17-year-old, fantastic-looking high school senior was chosen Monday night as the Washington Wheat Queen. Wheat, wheat. And then uh, five minutes later, they discovered when they put this uh, horseshoe made out of wheat around her neck that she was incredibly allergic to wheat, broke out in a fantastic rash, uh, fell down in, in a dead faint on the floor, and they took her to the hospital and brought her to. And uh, nevertheless, she remains the Wheat Queen. So tonight, we take this opportunity to salute men and all of his flubbing around. We uh, salute men and all of his uh, inability to cope with uh, what's happening. Well, that's not all. Uh, you, of course, realize that right now off Cardiff, Wales, there's a tanker that's on fire. Off Cardiff, Wales, filled with 1,500 tons of tapioca pudding. And they've been pouring water into it, and the pudding's been boiling, and now they got a fantastic load of tapioca pudding off the shores of Wales. I don't know whether that'll categorize itself as ultimate pollution, but I think a fish would like tapioca. I hate it. Bring it up there. Hey, hold it there, hold it there. Thank you, Jim. Uh, it's a kind of nice piece of music there. I don't know why I, uh, you know, that piece about the tapioca pudding in the ship there kind of got me because... Uh, uh, it's one of the very few foods that I have an insensate hate for. Something about tapioca pudding. And I imagine a psychologist could find out, you know, deep in my psyche. One time when I was uh, sent to stay with my Aunt Teresa, when everybody was having a party or something, my Aunt Teresa laid some tapioca pudding on us. I threw a fit ever since that time. You know, I, you know, <laughs> that's the way uh, psychologists work, you know. It doesn't matter whether it's true or not. It makes a hell of a good story. La dee 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 dee. Well, since this is, uh, you know, since this is a, you know, a holiday, I presume there aren't many people listening, which is kind of good. No, no, they take a day off even on that kind of stuff. And I'd like to report 
However, that the goofiness still continues. For those of you that didn't come into New York, it's going full blast. Uh, I know it's one thing for those of you who are, uh, uh, you know, who work here on, in, in the big building here on the 24th, and the 23rd, and the 20th floors. It was strange. Your crew was around here changing the locks on a lot of the doors. I don't know what they were doing. I guess the old keys wore out. And uh, they were, yeah, especially on a lot of the offices. I don't know what, what was going on up here. They were all up here this afternoon. And uh, it's just uh, interesting for those of you that uh, come, uh, you know, after the holiday when you report, uh, be sure to get your new key. That is, if they'll give you one. I don't know what was going on here. Yeah, there was well, maybe 15, 20 guys doing it. You know, uh, just while we're on the subject of uh, holidays, uh, I guess we are, I'd like to report that New York has uh, continued its uh, its uh, its forward-looking uh, uh, avant-garde work in uh, debauching every known holiday. Uh, as you know, New York led in killing Christmas. Uh, <laughs> it really did. <laughs> Made Christmas into a gigantic uh, Macy Gimble festival. And, uh, yeah, celebrating Mr. Macy. Ultimately, I presume they'll call it Macy Day or Gimble Day. In fact, why don't we have a big holiday like that? And just come on, lay it all out, you know. Just hang it out. Greed Day would even be better, you know. Uh, because uh, I, I, as I came through... Uh, as I was walking along over 34th Street, you know, big crowds of people. You can see they were all celebrating the patriotic birth date of uh, our first president. Uh, the most creative uh, celebration I saw of, along those lines, a little cockamamie store on 6th Avenue there, and uh, they were having a sale of uh, irons and toasters, you know, real bad-looking toasters, you know, four ninety-five, and uh, the sign says regularly nineteen ninety-five, and uh, it would take a real dildock of the first water to have ever paid nineteen ninety five for one of those tinfoil toasters they were selling, you know, with the little... <laughs> In fact, they even came with frayed electric cords. They were already frayed, so you didn't have to go through that work at home, you know, fraying your cord and breaking the plug. These came with all that done already, and uh, it's at four ninety five special purchase, uh, Washington's Day Celebration. And uh, there in the store, I saw a lot of people in there buying these cockamamie-looking things. And in the store was a guy dressed up like George Washington. He had a white wig on with a blue uh, coat, you know, with the buskin. And uh, he had those tight pants and the high white socks and the, uh, you know, those uh, funny-looking patent leather shoes. He had a Reynolds wrap, a set of nice Reynolds wrap buckles on it, too, I noticed. And he was selling uh, toasters. So the father of our country was uh, put at work today, and uh, it was a kind of a heartwarming sight. He was in there, and uh, kids were all kind of looking at him kind of funny. You know how kids do. They tend to take things literally. I imagine two- or three-year-old kids are going to grow up firmly believing that they saw George Washington once selling toasters on 6th Avenue. Uh, <laughs> that's how history gets all loused up. I wonder if George would recognize himself, you know, if he came past and uh, dropped into the toaster place there. And uh, I could see this guy. Come on, get out of get out of the way, old man. We don't have any time. Uh, you know, you're blocking the doorway there. Get out of the way of George Washington. Well, that, that always reminds me of these various uh, Christmas festivals. Uh, There's a funny Christmas festival. One night I was in this little town, and uh, this is out in Ohio. 
And they, they had one of these Christmas pageants, you know. And it was a little depressing, really. I, I'm telling you, I was a little depressed after that pageant because uh, I was involved, actually. I, I was there. I was a student at the time, and and uh, some for some crazy reason, I was visiting somebody in this town. You know how your students uh, visit their friends over the holidays? Well, I was visiting this guy in Xenia, Ohio. And uh, Xenia, Ohio. Well, I don't know why I did it. I don't know. Well, I'll tell you honestly why. I had a thing on his sister. He had this fantastic sister named Margaret. And uh, the only one thing, she had giant ears, and they stuck out of her hair, you know, on the either side. Yeah, she was okay, as long as there wasn't a high wind. But uh, nevertheless, I had this thing. You know, you go through these momentary aberrations. And I had a thing on this chick named Margaret, and she had uh, braces. Fantastic collection of silver in her mouth, a lot of wire. And uh, I was visiting this guy whose name was Ronald in Xenia, Ohio. I don't know whatever happened to him. Uh, so not that I care. Uh, Ronald Overholzer. Uh, was, uh, right there it gives you an idea what Margaret Overholzer was like. But that nevertheless, I was there. And uh, so, so, so for some reason or other, I found myself in a nightmare situation. They were having this uh, Christmas pageant. And, uh, you know, one of those things that were, uh, they had a little band shell. And they were, uh, the manger was built there. And they actually had a Christmas pageant. There were people playing the various parts. You know, the three wise men and, and uh, Mary and all that stuff. It was kind of nice for, for a while. But, but uh, you know, uh, you, you kind of lose your faith in life, uh, or at least in, in uh, ritual. Because 20 minutes later, I'm with Ronald Overholzer. And uh, we went to the bowling alley. It was a couple of days. It was before Christmas, actually. We went to the bowling alley, and all these guys were bowling. And, uh, by God, there was St. Peter bowling on lane two. And, uh, not only was he bowling, but he'd been hitting the jug. And, uh, you know how these guys do. You, you've seen this, uh, this type of behavior in a bowling alley. Hey, what's this, you guys? And he's hoisting the ball down there and bouncing it in the lane. And, you know, I, I don't like that kind of bowling anyway, but to see St. Peter, uh, you know, bugged to the ears, just just bagged. He had a snootful. And uh, bowling on the uh, on the same time just kind of killed it for me. I don't know what it was. The next night we went to the actual pageant. We had seen the rehearsal, and there was St. Peter up there. He had a beard on and wearing his long gown and all that stuff. And and somehow I kept seeing him bowling on lane two. It has a terrible, uncontrollable hook, incidentally, for those of you interested in the way St. Peter bowls. But uh, I would have to say that uh, George was a stirring sight this afternoon on 6th Avenue about a 36th Street, in case you missed it. Did you see that? Well, why do I see this stuff and nobody else sees it? God's sakes, my life is bad enough without being constantly harassed with seeing stuff like this. And, uh, well, that's not all. I, I had a friend one time, uh, you know, this, uh, this uh, way we celebrate our, our various... Uh, our various holidays is always interesting to me. I have a friend who worked in an ad agency one time, and in fact, he's still at this ad agency. He's still fooling them over there, and he he uh, worked at this agency one time when he first got there. He worked, see, but he learned that ain't the way to get ahead, and uh, he caught on quick. He's a VP now, and uh, he's wilding around down on the Virgin Islands or someplace, you know, making long-distance phone calls to the coast, and uh, you know, he's doing it a big, but. He had this uh, terrible moment when his buddy in the agency was given a Easter account. You know, we're, we're, we're approaching Easter. It won't be long. And uh, already they're probably all around town. They're laying in, uh, they're laying in chocolate eggs. 
Uh, I don't quite know what a chocolate egg has to do with Easter, but, uh, you know, I suppose uh, there are certain... Uh, immediately I'll be deluged with little old ladies. Mr. Shepherd, you, of course, must know the symbolism of the egg in the religious holiday. Come on. Uh, I don't think the guys at Barasini's are worried about the religious aspects of the chocolate egg. But, uh, <laughs> nevertheless, <laughs> why am I such a cynic here on this night? Uh, I guess it was seeing George sell 495 toasters that put me off my rocker. I mean, that'll do it. Uh, this is WOR New York. Hey, speaking of important news, we got something important here. Tomorrow, uh, we're going to make a whole series of book signings. And uh, the next three days... So if you're over in Jersey, get ready, friends. We're going to be signing copies of The Ferrari in the Bedroom, my new Dodd Mead book, which incidentally is now in its third printing and doing very well. Thank you. Uh, tomorrow, uh, we're going to be at Mamberger's at the Monmouth Shopping Center from 3 to 6 p.m. That's in Jersey. Monmouth Shopping Center, 3 to 6. That's Route 70 and Exit 105 at the Garden State Parkway. Then Wednesday... In the afternoon, from 3 to 6, we're going to be at Bamberger's in the, at East Brunswick, New Jersey. Bamberger's, East Brunswick, New Jersey, 3 to 6. That's Exit 9, New Jersey Turnpike. And then that night, that's uh, Wednesday night, at 7.30, we'll be at Bamberger's in the Cherry Hill Shopping Center on Route 38 in Cherry Hill, New Jersey. That's right out there near Camden, up near Philly. That's 7.30, Wednesday, Bamberger's, Cherry Hill Shopping Center. And then Thursday... We're going to be at the Garden State Shopping Center in Bambergers, and that'll be 3 to 6 in the afternoon. 3 to 6, Bambergers, Garden State Shopping Center, Thursday, the 22nd. That's in Paramus, New Jersey, exit 161 off Garden State Parkway. And then that night, Thursday night, at 7.30, we'll be at the Willow Brook Mall. That's Bambergers, of course, the Willow Brook Mall in Wayne, New Jersey, 7.30 p.m. off Route 46. So, a quick rundown. Tuesday, 3 to 6, Bamberger's Mama Shopping Center. Wednesday, 3 to 6, Bamberger's East Brunswick, New Jersey. And that night, Bamberger's Cherry Hill Shopping Center at 7.30. And then Thursday, 3 to 6, Bamberger's Garden State Shopping Center. And 7.30, Bamberger's Willowbrook Mall. Okay? I'll, I'll bring along my big fat pen, and uh, we'll sign. I'll, I'll put in the front of your book, if you whisper Excelsior in my ear, I'll put the stuff that my publisher made me take out on the front page there. <laughs> That's a Ferrari in the bedroom. It's Dodd Mead. And incidentally, the, the book is for sale at all bookstores all around, so if you can't make it to Bambergers, you can pick it up at a lot of other places. Ferrari in the bedroom. You know, uh, uh, speaking of, uh, of uh, holidays, I myself have been guilty of this. I mean, uh, one time I played Santa Claus. I think I've talked about that. I played Santa Claus both on the television and on the radio. And uh, it's very exciting to play uh, Mr. Claus. Although that doesn't have any religious overtones, really. But uh, one of my friends, as I said, the guy in the ad agency, he had this buddy, see? <laughs> I mean, talk about a surrealistic moment right out of a Fellini movie. Uh, this friend is, is uh, you know, when you're way down low in an ad agency, it doesn't make any... You, yeah, I mean, really way down on the totem pole. But just above the mail room, uh, you get all kinds of uh, obscene uh, assignments, uh, all kinds. In fact, one time, my friend, when he first went to the agency, believe it or not, uh, he was assigned to make a statue of Paul Bunyan. 
with two other guys out of rolls of toilet paper. Well, now, you, 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 you figure that one out. He said, he said it was very educational. He was making a statue of Paul. Now, why Paul Bunyan? Well, uh, it was a celebration of the paper industry, and they were having a celebration someplace, and he was involved in it, and they wanted a statue of Paul Bunyan made out of Scott tissue. Don't ask me why. Uh, it was a big hit, he said, but it was an educational experience making the statue. He said guys would come past and, you know, comment and so on. And <laughs> he said he was learning about the ad business. But uh, his friend had one of the most uh, terrible things happen to him that I can imagine. Uh, he was involved in a candy account and uh, locally here. And somebody got the insane idea that the Easter Bunny should make an appearance at one of the big candy stores. And they got this poor guy who was a, the low man on the totem pole in the ad agency to wear an Easter Bunny suit. And uh, now that's bad enough, but you ain't heard what happened to him in his Easter Bunny suit. He... He, uh, they got the Easter Bunny suit. Now, it ain't easy to rent an Easter Bunny suit, you know? It's uh, not hard, but it ain't easy either. It's one of those uh, touch-and-go things because there's just a limited supply of Easter Bunny suits in New York, and first comes, first serve. I mean, you know, the demand gets heavy a couple of days a year, and uh, so he just got the last Easter Bunny suit that was available in town, and it was a very, very happy Easter Bunny suit. It was a... It was uh, the reason that this bunny actually was not uh, used earlier was that the bunny was fantastically fat and a uh, giant bunny who had all this polyfoam stuffing and all that stuff and had big eyes and ear balls and all that stuff hanging out and, and it was a vaguely comic Easter bunny. They wanted a serious Easter bunny, uh, but they couldn't get one so that they got the comic one, the best they could do, and one ear flopped down and stuff. So <laughs> he put out the Easter bunny suit up at the ad agency, and uh, got on this in the in the elevator. See, the candy store was about two blocks away, and he got in the elevator. Well, naturally, there was a dead silence on the elevator when the old Easter Bunny got on there, and and the guy was kind of big, anyways, about six feet two for starters. So it's a big Easter Bunny came aboard, and uh, they went downstairs, and he got out on the street. See, and he 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 told his friend, "Look," he says, uh, "You run." You run interference for me. He said, you know, I don't want to go down the street just all by myself in the Easter Bunny suit. He said, so if anything breaks, any, any problems develop, you'll be there. So the, my friend is running interference for him, so they're, they're ahead, see. They're, 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 he's running ahead, and now they're in this great big building uh, right here on 42nd and, and Lexington, one of those street, you know, one of those big buildings there. And on the ground floor, they had a restaurant. Now, this is a very crucial point. And my friend had one of those bad ideas that come to people from time to time. He thought, well, I'm going to save my friend embarrassment. And rather than go through the main door of the building where there's 12,000 people going in and out, we will cut through the shrafts here. See, there was a, there was a shrafts down on the bottom there. We will cut through the shrafts. And it's, a, you know, it's, a, it's in the afternoon. There won't be a lot of people. And we'll cut through and we'll go out the other side. See, that way we'll avoid this fantastic crowd that's always around going into Grand Central, right? So, at that point, my friend waves and points to the door. Well, the Easter Bunny guy, without thinking, agrees. His head goes up and down, the ears flop. And so my buddy goes through the door in the shrafts. Revolving door. Goes into the revolving door, and he's cutting through the gloom. You know how shrafts are gloomy-like and kind of dark and, uh, and uh, kind of intimate in the afternoon? Well, you know, the old ladies come and get a couple of snifters of bourbon in their tea, 
And uh, so, anyway, he, 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 he cuts through. My buddy goes right through the door, see? Well, at that point, the Easter Bunny comes charging along, and he goes into the revolving door. Well, you know, it's not easy to get used to an Easter Bunny suit, especially when you've only been wearing it about 15 minutes. And he goes into the door, and, well, it was too wide, but he's now stuck in the door. The door goes halfway through, and here's the Easter Bunny. Well, on the other side of the revolving door was a nice little old lady wearing what looked like an overturned geranium pot on her head for a hat. You know that type? She had a net shopping bag full of bones. You know the stuff that old ladies carry around in the afternoon and a bumper shoot and all the rest of it, see? And she takes one look at the Easter Bunny uh, in the next compartment of the revolving door since she is trapped in there, too, now. And she goes, ah, like that. And she sinks down to the floor in a dead, fantastic faint. Well, there's my friend who has not seen any of this. He has gone right on through, you know. He's already through the other revolving door. And, you know, he's charging through the crowd. And he looks around, and he can't, you know, he can't figure out where Howard is. He looks around, Howard's not around. So he figures, well, Howard must have uh, run into a little problem. So he goes back through the revolving door, and here's a giant crowd now has gathered. And he just sees the two ears of his friend sticking over the crowd in the, in the revolving door. And the old lady has come to, and she is screaming, Oh, 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 look at that! Well, now, there was a funny face uh, that this lady was making. Apparently, this old lady uh, tipped the jug occasionally. Let's put it that way, politely. And uh, she'd been in, in shrafts there, you know, and having a few, uh, a few quickies uh, while she's, uh, you know, after her hard day at Macy's, you know, shopping. And uh, she she uh, suddenly sees the Easter Bunny in a revolving door. <laughs> well, any good serious drinker is always half expecting that to happen. Uh, <laughs> but ain't the Easter Bunny, it's a large uh, gopher sitting at their bunny. And he said it was an icy moment. Uh, they met down in the mimeograph room, and he said it was a very icy moment. This guy just gave Jim one long, cool look and turned and walked away and never said anything to him again. He said, this is the way you lose your friends. A moment of thoughtlessness, a moment of chickenness. You know, you chicken out, and he ran away, and he left his buddy. Well, now, see, this, this all came about because we have a great desire in this country to illustrate ho uh, holidays, literally. I mean, you know, we do. We... we uh, we illustrate them literally. Most other countries is symbolic, but we make them literal. So George, uh, George Washington. Can anyone explain to me what the connection that George Washington has with sales? Seriously, it's traditional now. I mean, why Washington? For crying out loud, you know, of all people. Uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, that's like. Uh, of course, uh, Washington. Uh, I suppose this is as good as anything, but we don't celebrate Benjamin Franklin Day. Now, that would be a guy you could do that with. You know, Franklin was a great gadgeteer. I mean, he, he would have been the first in his neighborhood to own, uh, you know, uh, a wind-driven, uh, power-operated lawnmower. He would have loved it. You know, the, the typical... By the way, uh, that, uh, that reminds me, you know, uh, since this is a holiday, the... Uh, yeah, somebody wrote me a letter, you know, the other day and said, Shepard, you haven't read any great letters from listeners recently. And uh, so I have a, I just picked this one up here, you know. It says, my son, Joe, is in the eighth grade. And I won't tell you what school it is. I don't want to embarrass the kid, but he's in the eighth grade. It says, he had to submit a book report recently for which he received an outstanding 
and a few remarks. I thought you perhaps might enjoy seeing the report that's signed by his mother. And underneath it says, P.S., uh, I have listened to you for some time, and I told my son about you. He is now an avid listener. I live complete suburban conformity, and I think your program has helped to take the edge off it. So forth. <laughs> you know, you, how do you know when you're living? I think the true suburban uh, conformist doesn't know that. He doesn't know he's conforming. He thinks he's very hip when he goes out and gets those madras shorts. I mean, he thinks he's really with it, you know, when he gets a snowmobile. He doesn't think he's conforming. Like, uh, like every male now who lives in certain affluent suburban areas has a motorcycle. He thinks he's very hip, you know. He's, he's hip, you know. He's, a, he's one of the new free breed. But actually, he's conforming to a moray of his area. Uh, you're nothing in many places out in the suburbs unless you've got a Honda 305. You know, you can come tooling up to the shopping center trying to look like you're hit, you know, you're with it from your Cape Cod baronial estate. But uh, <laughs> this, uh, so, oh, you want to hear his book report? The kid's book report. Okay, here's his book report. And it says, uh, In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. And uh, it says, uh, By Gene Shepard, published Dolphin's Book. And uh, I see book reports now, in this school anyway, have a much more concise form than when I was in school. Now they're like a, like a, you know, like almost in an outline form. See, he's got outline, publishers, and down the side, characters, summary. Now, when I did book reports for Miss Fife, uh, I was a master of the book report for Miss Fife. I, I learned very early. I learned the trick that many book reviewers learn, that you can write an entire, maybe even as many as a 10,000-word essay on one page of a book. Uh, without even, you look like you really read it. You say, this, uh, this book uh, has uh, certain uh, searing moments in it, and however, in certain er other areas, it's uh, shallow and uh, not well thought out. Uh, and uh, yet, uh, on the other hand, so you, can, you can fill it all. You can say that about any book, see? And then, then, then you come, come to, the, to the page. It says, take, for example, page 187, uh, when the author refers to, uh, to uh, cockamamies which uh, the uh, hero apparently was buying in a candy store. Now, this is gross inaccuracy. Uh, any cockamamie expert knows that cockamamies are not purchased in candy stores, but dot, 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 now you're off, see. Uh, you're, you're off on your essay on cockamamies. Forget the author who spent seven and a half years writing his book, and uh, you're illustrating now your great grasp of the cockamamie world. Now, you do this on the basis of reading one paragraph in a book. You don't read the rest of the book. You read the blurb, you skim through it, and you pick out maybe one, just a, a page sort of near the end. So it looks like you really read it, so you don't start on page two with your... Uh, for example, all right, here's what this kid... He's very, very... Here's a hardworking kid. In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash, by Gene Shepard. Published, Dolphin's Book, Characters, One, Gene Shepard. Well, I beg to differ, kid. You flubbed it right there. Gene Shepard does not at any point appear in that book. <laughs> he doesn't. <laughs> Gene Shepard does not appear in In God We Trust, All Others Pay Cash. Two, Flick and Schwartz. Yes, they do appear. Uh, it says two of Gene's pals. They are not Gene's pals in this book. Again, kid. Boy, would I flunk this kid badly on this review. Three, his mother, father, and kid brother. Whose mother, father, and kid brother? Schwartz and Flick? He doesn't say. 
He says that most of which are in the stories, uh, the kid brother Randy was the usual whining, sniffling kid brother type. That is correct. Summary. This book is mainly about two men, uh, both born in northern Indiana, and both after 30 years. How does he know it was 30 years? At no point did I, there was no point of time ever given in that. He just assumes that. Rejoin and talk about old times. Uh, Gene, the author, is a New York personality. No, no, that's not true. Ralph Parker is the character in the book. At no point am I in that book. Flick, on the other hand, was a tavern owner and stayed in Hammond, Indiana. At no point does it say he's a tavern owner. It says that he is a bartender, right? This kid's failing badly. It says, Gene was sent to write an essay on steel mill towns. No, Gene has never been sent to write essays on steel mill towns. This, uh, <laughs> this is, again, Ralph Parker. Somehow he thinks it's about Gene Shepard, but it is not. Anyway, he, he says, he does get right down to this, though. He says, they relive their classical moments of their kid days. Uh, they talk about their momentary victories and totally crushing defeats, which is quite true. At the end, they talk about when they were in a war and so on. It says they were best friends. Opinion. This was one of the funniest and best books I have read. It was warm and personal. Uh, no black humor, no bathroom remarks, just the triumphs and defeats of true kid life. I would highly recommend it. Well, now that's, his, uh, that's a very interesting review by an 8-year-old. You know, or, or rather a 13-year-old. Is it 13? Uh, he's 15. No, no, 13. I don't know how old he is. He's in the 8th grade. How old would he be in the 8th grade? 12. 12. He's 12. You know, the curious thing about it, that book, uh, none of my stuff is written for kids. It's not kid literature, and yet kids relate to it for some curious reason. And uh, he, uh, he illustrates, uh, though, one of the great uh, fallacies, and that is that my books are really memorabilia, which they are not. Uh, it would be, uh, you know, I, I, I suppose when you write in the first person, that happens. Uh, to, you know, people tend to take it literally when, when the first person is used. As a matter of fact, you know who wrote a great essay on that subject? Great essay. Uh, on that subject was Somerset Maugham. Uh, I one time, uh, in a course in, in the university, uh, I was taking a course in English Lit, and uh, somehow along the line we got involved in uh, writers writing about writing. And, uh, you know, the whole process of writing, uh, what Robert Louis Stevenson, for example, said about writing. You know, there's a very interesting essay around that uh, Edgar Allan Poe did about writing The Raven. Have you ever read that? How he came, you know, how he wrote the Raven, what he did technically. It's a very interesting uh, essay. And uh, of course, in any of those essays uh, about writing, uh, there's one thing a writer can never do, and I and I certainly include myself in this. There's no writer can actually tell you how the idea and the conception of a work originates. He can't do that. He can give you a lot of superficial... Well, I always felt that I ought to write a thing about the whales. Uh, but why? Uh, and, and, and why Ahab stumping around the quarterdeck? Uh, <laughs> so there's no... Ultimately, you can't explain your own mind, is what I'm saying. Uh, so people tend to try to go to writers for, you know, the germ of how can I write, too. 
I guess every writer runs into this all his life. Everybody you, re- everybody you meet believes that he has a book in him. Uh, that if only he could find the time, dot, dot, dot. Uh, of course, nothing could be further from the truth. Uh, the only people who have books in them are authors. Uh, they eventually give birth to them. Uh, the other people have only got dreams of having a book in them. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, uh, uh, Somerset Maugham wrote a very interesting piece, which uh, I think uh, has a lot of uh, validity. Uh, I was not necessarily a great Somerset Maugham fan. However, he was and uh, remains a great classical storyteller. His work is, uh, you know, a solid body of work. And uh, he was a great storyteller, no question about it. And he, it has, you know, in his day and time, had a great deal to say about life and uh, corruption and one thing and another. But nevertheless, Somerset Maugham said, he said that uh, that people are very literal-minded. He said the funny thing about them, they they uh, they read a book and the I in the book they always take to be the author. He said they really believe this is the author, not not. He hasn't created something. He's really saying this. This is the author talking. And he said, from time to time, as I attend parties, people have come up to me and uh, have taken my hand and said, uh, you know, that was a terrible thing about that kidnapping you were involved in, but I hope that uh, I hope that uh, you've lived it down now and that you won't be involved in crime of any sort of that time. I'm glad that you've gotten straightened out and become an author and all. And he said because at one time he wrote a short story about a kidnapper written in the first person, I. <laughs> so people think it must have been him. He must have gone out and kidnapped somebody. And uh, this is one of the great problems. Uh, some some novelists solve it by merely a, a, a classical historical gimmick. And that is a gimmick where the the opening... It's not really a gimmick. It's, it's an actual... Because he knows he's not writing about himself. You know, he... He's he partly himself. All characters in any novel are partly the author. All characters. Uh, there's no way for you to create a character where, if it has any life, uh, you don't draw upon somehow your own feelings and things, you know? Uh, if, if, for example, you're drawing about, you're dry, writing about a murderer and the murderer kills somebody, well, how are you going to describe how he feels unless you have to relate it to how you would feel if you killed somebody? No way you'd know. So uh, the the author really is in everything in his work. No matter how hard he tries to prevent it, it's there. But uh, literally, no. As a matter of fact, uh, am I boring you? This is an interesting subject to me because being a writer, you know, I I find uh, I find a lot of misconceptions about this around. And and uh, for example, uh, J. D. Salinger when he wrote Catcher in the Rye. Uh, he, which is a story of a 16-year-old kid, supposedly, uh, telling you about the time he ran away from the prep school, the military school he was going to, and he came back to the city, New York. You remember the book. Well, he starts out with the kid saying, well, I suppose you want to know my name and all that junk. Okay, my name is Holden Caulfield and so forth. I am uh, 16, and I got this brother, all right. Uh, and I got these, this mother and this father and this sister, all right. And uh, here's what happened to me. And from that time on, it's all in the first person. Now, a lot of people reading this uh, tend to believe that that must really be J.D. Salinger. He's had a lot of problems with that. Yes, I see, Jerry. He's had a lot of problems with that. Everybody believes that, you know, that he was Holden Caulfield. 
Well, no, he wasn't. Uh, and, and, and as the work, as you grow away from the, the, the actual personality of the writer, later generations will accept it as a fictional character. You know that for many years, Mark Twain had that problem. People thought that he didn't write books. He just wrote the memories of uh, days in uh, Hannibal, Missouri. He didn't create Huck Finn. Huck Finn was a friend of his. Uh, it was written so well that they believed that. Did you know that, Jim? They used to bug him for years. You know, people would ask him, uh, how long has it been since you've seen Huck? And he <laughs> said, what do you mean? You know, I created him. Incidentally, that's another thing. Did you see the stamps recently uh, that the uh, Postal Department has come out with? Tom Sawyer stamps? Celebrating a character in fiction? Yeah, that's, uh, that's interesting. I noticed they picked Tom Sawyer, not Huck Finn. Uh, Tom is uh, much more out of the Norman Rockwell world, whereas Huck Finn is a little bit out of uh, out of something else again. Uh, Huck was the other side, but uh, here he is. You know the classic picture of Tom Sawyer painting uh, painting the fence, which is one of the great scenes out of uh, out of the book Tom Sawyer. So I, uh, I I was fascinated with this kid's view of my work and his his book review. It's in- intriguing, but. Uh, uh, he's a little... Oh, the teacher writes a note on the top of it. She says, I agree with your opinion. How nice. I envy you the joy of reading a book I know is good when I've enjoyed it, too. That is true. I, I always envy... No, I, I get that feeling. See, anybody who loves to read, and I, I don't think you do necessarily, Jim, but anybody who does love to read uh, envies somebody who is about to read a book that he really dug. Do you have that feeling, Jerry? I do. And I can tell you some books like that. Uh, uh, I remember The Once and Future King by T.H. White, which I enjoyed immensely at the time. And I remember uh, recommending it to somebody and, and uh, sitting back and watching him enjoy it. Uh, I, I feel this way about quite a few books. And I have to agree with that teacher. By the way, you know, teachers of English are, are a strange breed today. Uh Many kids have written me and they have said that their teacher refuses to allow them to make a book report on my book. Now, I don't know why, <laughs> but it's, it's, you know, but that's the way. Others, uh, not so. Uh, in fact, one kid wrote me, he says, Shepard, he says, I had a terrible thing happen to me. He said, I've read all four of your books, and he said, uh, you've won the Playboy Humor Prize about four or five times for writing. And he said, uh, I, I was writing, uh, we were assigned an, uh, an assignment to write a, an assignment on an American humorist. And he said, I picked you. Well, my teacher said, no, absolutely not. So he says, why? She just wouldn't answer. This is a teacher in Clifton, New Jersey. She just wouldn't answer. Well, at that point, he said, well, gee, what am I going to do? She said, I had all your books and I'd read up on everything. So my mother suggested I write on Thurber. So he said, I came back. Uh, to the teacher, and I said, all right, I'm going to write on James Thurber. She said, Thurber? Thurber who? At which point, he says, Shepard, I've got to say one thing. You're in damn good company. <laughs> I, I am sometimes amazed at the ignorance today of uh, many teachers uh, vis-a-vis American literature, particularly 20th century American literature. Uh, usually their knowledge begins and ends with Faulkner and Hemingway, possibly a little smattering of Fitzgerald, and uh, maybe just a little uh, soupçon of, t- of the first Thomas Wolfe, and that's about the extent of it. 
and that nobody else ever wrote in the 20th century except those guys. And I suspect a few of those are going to be forgotten by the 21st century. But uh, so I had no answer to give the kid. I said, well, I don't know, kid. On the other hand, uh, I had uh, a letter written by the head of the English department of a Midwestern college, very famous one. And he said, they're doing a massive study on my work out there. And he said, would I please... uh, uh, would I please come out so I can answer some pertinent questions vis-a-vis your work? So there's all kinds of dichotomy in this world about teaching literature. I suspect, ultimately, it can't be taught. <laughs> I mean, uh, in some mystery novels today, for example, I think uh, some of the works of J.D. MacDonald, I think more is being said often in, a, in the context of telling a mystery story about the morality of our day and the attitudes and the life of our day than many of the self-conscious works. That's in capital letters, works. Uh, You know, endless uh, things you slog through by Wallace Stevens, any one of five writers named Wallace. Uh, So I suppose uh, the the whole thing is still up in the air. Nobody will ever know, you know. And... uh, so I'm glad to see that old Mark Twain finally got uh, one of his characters on a stamp. I don't think he himself made it yet, but uh, Tom Sawyer did. You know, I wonder wh- when they're going to bring out the, you know, the last fantastic moments of uh, Captain Ahab, you know, with Ahab spread-eagled on the white whale, uh, you know, a Melville festival. Or, uh, or yeah, yeah, I, there's no reason why we can't have a whole series of uh, literary-type uh, uh, postage stamps. Can't you just see Holden Caulfield with his red hunting cap? Looking fun. Uh, <laughs> you know, today's anti-hero. Uh, you could have uh, a, a, the great Gatsby. You know, the, the elegant great Gatsby in his two-tone floor shine shoes stepping out of his uh, out of his uh, yellow Rolls-Royce convertible uh, on uh, in Great Neck, Long Island. And you could see his... Uh, you know, his estate in the background, underneath it, it says the Great Gatsby, uh, the night of the catastrophic party. Uh, you know, why not? Uh, I mean, after all, we have uh, strange stamps anyway. We we just celebrated National Dental Week, by the way, on stamps. Did you see the stamp with the denture on it? That was kind of romantic. Yes, sir. This is WOR New York. You stay tuned for Lester Smith and the news. This is the news in detail on the hour from the WOR newsroom. The State Commission of Investigation tonight issued a 135-page report on New York City's tax assessment procedures, and it points a finger at City Tax Commissioner Norman Levy. The report charges that Levy, while borough tax commissioner for Staten Island in 1969, granted a half-million-dollar reduction in real estate assessments on property owned by Joseph Ray, known by police to have underworld connections. He is a reported associate of the Carlo Gambino crime family. Ray, in 1969, was described as a Staten Island real estate speculator, doing business with one Paul Castellano, another member of the Gambino family. Ray, the report notes, went to see a lawyer identified only as Mr. G, who had offices in the same building as Levy. And it says that Mr. G prevailed upon Levy to make the tax reduction for Ray, with Levy and Mr. G splitting the legal fee paid by Ray. Levy was also criticized on another matter.
playing the role of the chief fundraiser of the Brooklyn John V. Lindsay Association, last year's presidential primary in which the mayor was highly unsuccessful. This, says the report, was incompatible with the nature of Levy's city job. Henry Kissinger leaves Tokyo in a few hours. He's due to arrive in Washington mid-afternoon tomorrow. What was accomplished in his visit to Peking? Well, we may know very shortly after his arrival. Newsman Don Folsom reports from the Florida White House. Press Secretary Ziegler says he fully expects a joint communique to be issued as a result of Dr. Kissinger's China talks. But Ziegler gives as Wednesday the earliest possible time for the release of that document. First, Kissinger must personally report to the president on his Far East mission, which also includes conferences in Hanoi with the leaders of North Vietnam. The president will be back in Washington tomorrow by the time Kissinger arrives with his report. The communique could well contain news of a number of Sino-American agreements. For one example, it could include word on the fate of two Americans long held captive in China. Don Folsom at the Florida White House. Former Illinois Governor Otto Kerner, now a federal appeals court judge, found guilty...